Yeah. Oral sex must have been much less common back in those oh, days. Oh, Jesus, no. <laughs> 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 oh, Hello and welcome, everybody. It is of the M Podcast, and this week we are all falling the fuck apart. We have a poorly Tim and a poorly Matt, but luckily we have someone that is completely cognitive, enthusiastic, <laughs> and ready to give his opinion on the 200 pages. Of a 500-page graphic novel <laughs> that he could be fucking ass to read. Tim, I'm sorry, mate. You're gonna have to pull this one through. <laughs> uh, so before we go into what we're talking about today, I think it's only fair to give the chap a chance to introduce himself. Joe, how are you? Uh, doing really good. Doing really good. Um, <laughs> from the sounds of it, a little better than you guys. But uh, <laughs> I, I didn't. I think uh, your affliction is the fact that you actually followed through and read this entire book i think it's uh in 24 hours nonetheless yeah, in 20... yeah. <laughs> that's the cause of all your woos today I think. <laughs> yeah it was the threat of having to do it in 24 hours and then following through on it that, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you you banged that out uh, like a madman so I think that might have compounded this the the problem for you. And the second of our walking wounded is my <laughs> usual, indeed, our usual co-host, Tim. Tim, how are you doing? I am doing just great. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy to talk with you guys. Did you really just read this in one day? Not even a day. I, I started at half past three yesterday. I know you threatened to do that, but it took me like a week of sustained reading to get through this. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) We are talking about Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's From Hell, a literary masterpiece, or is it? And we are going to talk about the comic, then we're going to talk about the film, and then we're going to compare the two. We're going to wrap it all up in a nice little bow. And yeah, that's going to be the episode. Perfect. What were your overall impressions of From Hell? My overall impressions were, I had no idea what to think about this going into it. I thought it'd be like some rip-roaring murder mystery type of thing, as the actual ripper killings are, the Whitechapel killings are, sort of a mystery. And the first, I would say, maybe 150 pages, I was like, oh God, how am I going to get through this? It was rough at first to get into it and to get used to it but by the end i thought i just loved this comic book i think it had to do with the fact that i i read it very slowly and i read it with all the annotations so i don't know if the the original was published with annotations or or not it seems like that it wasn't because more references literature from the 90s i know this comic Mm. was originally written in 1989 so it seems like this was maybe for the master edition which is what i have that he did the annotations i can't imagine reading this without the annotations i didn't know they existed so i just steamed through and it wasn't until about chapter 13 of well 15 including the epilogue that i realized that the whole back last night um i stopped about half past midnight and then I flicked to the back to see if there was any extras to see how much if at all I should leave some for tomorrow and then I found all the annotations in the back and the appendix so I was like oh well I'm not going back through them now and it makes oh, yeah, it made, yeah. it no, made it any sense it, it wouldn't make any sense either because it's broken down by literal page yeah, yeah, yeah. so it wouldn't have made any sense anyway but without that I don't think I could have gotten through it but having done it it's like a classic like reading something like, I don't know, Middlemarch, where it's like, okay, you kind of plod through it. And then at the end, you're like, oh, I'm glad I did this. There's reward to it. So it's a weird one, because it's not something I would necessarily recommend to people that, you know, it's, but I personally love it. There's so many things to say about it. I have the color master edition, and it was originally done in black and white. That would be even harder to read, because 
You can't mm. distinguish some of the characters. There's so many characters, so much are drawn to look very similar. So it'd be hard to distinguish them. Yes. My version is like, okay, that girl has blonde hair. This girl has brown hair. They look the same, but I can tell them that they're different characters. Whereas in the black and white, I don't think I could have done it. So it's a tricky book to read it, but I got a lot out of it. I read the version that was free on Kindle, which like you said, is the original version, the black and white. Mm-hmm. If you're into like history and reading history manuscripts, it kind of reads like that. It's very straightforward visually. It's very bland. The delivery is mainly nine panel grid delivery, black and white. Seen as how it's a 900 page graphic novel, I think the artist kind of took a very more loose and quick approach to the majority of how it's presented visually. Yeah, and for me, like whenever. Yeah. And when I read something that's sequential art, it's very important on how you deliver in tone. And I find that's maybe where it's harder to get into it because the subject matter is pretty heavy. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of information and it's delivered in a very dry, straightforward manner, which like Tim said, would probably like you have the colored version. So you get a little extra, you know, maybe a little extra something you know, for the deliveries. So I think that's maybe where for me, I had a hard time and I had a lot of shit on my plate and I'm reading this. I got 200 pages in and I'm like, dude, I have 500. It's a little over 500 pages. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yeah, I'm never going to get through this. I'm never going to and be able to do all the other shit I had to do. So if you're going to read this, you have to dedicate a good chunk. Of your... <laughs> well, when you say a day, that's, you almost did like a solid 12 hours straight of reading. I read the first chapter and a half three times and I found it very inhibitive. Yeah. But when I read it, I had a flick through again and then I started from halfway through chapter two and I read till chapter 11, which took me from about half past three in the afternoon to about maybe one o'clock in the morning. And then I polished it off today. Now, I think this is in execution, in excellence. One of the finest things I've ever read. It rewards perseverance, and boy, is it, does it require perseverance. Mm-hmm. Up to chapter four or five, it is almost indistinguishable page from page, panel to panel. I can switch off, and I go, we'll just allow it. Allow it, mm-hmm. and then we'll see where it takes us. At the start of the story, especially, you're right, in black and white. And when I found out there was a coloured version, I was very disappointed that I hadn't had it with colour because it would have made it an easier read. However, you don't want this to be an easy read. The whole thing is about bleakness. The city of Whitechapel or the township or whatever it is, it felt alive, but in a way that it's like rotting fruit swarmed by insects. It has both decay and feeding all clashing into each other at the same Mm -hmm. time. Once you arrive at maybe chapter six or seven, the fluidity of the storytelling, when it really stops setting the scene of Whitechapel, which I think is an absolute Mm -hmm. necessary slog because you feel immersed in the miasmic nature of Whitechapel, that thereafter, once it does get to the Ripper stuff, I couldn't put it down. And I whipped from about... When I was at maybe chapter five, I was like, fuck, I'm never going to be able to read this in time because it was slow and turgid and it was page after page and then rereading panels because my mind was going elsewhere. And the language is a very sort of Baroque, local Cockney English from that era. And it was Mm -hmm. physically and almost emotionally difficult to read. But once it arrived at the actual Ripper stuff and it just flew by page to page, it was gripping, it was tense, it was disgusting, it was horrid. And at that point, I forgot how difficult the first four or five chapters were. Honestly, just completely blew me away. And from having such a difficult introduction to the characters, just slipped into clarity of character that just flowed. And it was almost indistinguishable when it hit that point. And I think it works, binging it, which is completely contrary to what I thought. I was riveted. I completely agree that the the first, I think it was either chapter four or chapter five, where Gull, where Sir William takes Natalie through the city four, um, yeah. on that like architecture tour of where he's going to like leave the bodies, basically. 
I remember texting you guys saying like, I don't, I don't know if I can do it at that mm. point. I was kind of discouraged, but you, the thing is you, you feel the weight of the place, the time and place. And after you get through that and you realize there is a story and a plot that is like kind of ripping pun not intended there but like it's kind of like a fun story ultimately as disgusting and like dark as it is there are lines that connect once you get through that you see the purpose of that initial set of sections which is just to really set the stage of the weight of the time and the place that is rewarded ultimately so yeah I, i agree did you guys have any knowledge of these killings before like do you know the story at all i didn't really. I I didn't. And it needs to be said that this is almost entirely fiction. This is a yeah. fabricated story. It is yeah. very loosely. The people are real. The locations are real. The killings are real. But this commits really candidly and early to its villainy. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's gull, isn't it? There's no reveal. There's no tension reveal. Right. While we're talking about chapter four, there was this really prolonged sequence of a... Uh, horse and cart journey through the landmarks of mm-hmm. 19th century London. But as the story progresses, I sort of saw that is a trip through the iconography of sort of patriarchal, yeah, yeah, empirical Great Britain. And the way that this story is almost proposing the fear of its emaciation that sets the fear against like the suffragettes that are shown. We have this big, strong, patriarchal London, but then we have this emerging matriarch almost using London as a characterization of the political feel at that time. Or at least looking at the past of it. It sets these grand icons of 19th century London against the squalor of Whitechapel, right? It draws into relief both. And those are at odds throughout. I mean, it's all about this underclass in this neighborhood. Yeah. I think it was in the annotations, more mentions that there were some number of tens of thousands of residents of Whitechapel, but only like 20% of the required rooms available for people to mm-hmm. actually stay in. And so that's why, that's why, just like as a matter of sociology, so many women turn to prostitution is so they can have a place to stay. It sets those two against each other, the grand sights of London against this, the realities on the ground. Yeah, and it also tries to explain the women's existence and the existence of Whitechapel through the vicious killings. It was using that almost as per exemplar for the overall existence of 19th century empirical Great Britain and London especially. And it kind of inspected it almost like an embodiment of Apollo in Dionysus where Apollo was seen as is the masculine, careful, thoughtful, opposite of Dionysus that was more free and decadent. And it kind of makes the statement that when they're in opposition, nothing works. But when they're entwined, that is the only way to make anything work with the best of the feminine and the masculine, with the, the thoughtful and the decadent. You can't alienate one from the other. The genius such of it is of like, the build up to that chapter is that that chapter in particular, like really tests your patience. And that's where it's so tempting to give up. But that is what it sets the thematic scale perfectly. Ultimately, when you get through the story, that is what sets the thematic scale. It's such a skillful thing to like test the reader's patience such that if I was going to give up. That's where it was going to be. But mm-hmm. that's really, that's the most essential chapter ultimately in a lot of yeah. ways. The entire book. Gull proposes some pretty necessary questions as well. This sort of mania of killing, the way that he admits to his wife quite candidly, oh yeah, it was me. There's a knock yeah. at the door. Oh, what's the fellas called? Aberline or Abeline. Yeah, Abeline um, turns up with Lees and yeah, yeah, he yeah, just yeah. says, We think you're the ripper. And he goes, Yeah, yeah, I did it. Yeah. 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 And I'm like, what? What's going on? Yeah. Kind of like the mania of killing, he just zoned out and he wasn't aware of what was happening. And apparently that is quite a real thing with serial killers. It offers questions of agency. In a way, Gulls saw it as a kind of artistry, the way that it was a very showing way of murdering the women. He didn't just cut their throats. He removed organs. He vandalised their wounds. 
And, you know, can there ever be art in such uh, brutality? Like, at what stage is the envelope? Can it ever be pushed too far? And at what point do you need to recede it? It's a rich text. One thing we, we did mention <laughs> is that is that uh, this is a fictionalized account of what happened there. Now, it's based on, if you read the annotations, the whole thing is based on deep research from primary, not primary accounts, but histories and theories that he kind of pulls together to develop his own sort of account. It kind of roughly roughly dovetails with this one thing, a book by Stephen Knight. Um, I can't remember the title of the- Into the, the Abyss book. from the early 20th century. Okay, okay. So should we go over like what the theory is here? Just the, because I doubt that there's going to be many people- Yeah, go for it, man. Yeah, yeah. All right, it's, so it's, is it? Yeah, it's, it's cool. So it's a horror. It, it, it's go, 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 go. Yeah, yeah. So it, he proposes basically a, a grand conspiracy that goes all the way up to like Victoria, the queen. And so basically she has this uh, family member and I, I can't remember, like either a nephew or a son or something called Prince Eddie. Um, his, his real name's Albert. And that's one of the confusions at the beginning. He's like, who the fuck is Eddie? Who the fuck is Albert? Is this the same guy? Yeah. But that's like is a Is that the guy from the King's Speech? Is it? I don't know. It might be. No, let me check. <laughs> because he stutters in it, doesn't he? He stutters yeah. when he speaks. He does stutter. Oh no, he was King George. Ah, oh, oh, okay. no, too bad. Uh, well, yeah, too okay, bad. So <laughs> Prince Eddie basically takes a lover of one of the prostitutes from Whitechapel and impregnates her. He really is in mm. love with her, it seems. But he mm -hmm. turns out he's bisexual. It looks like like he goes to the male brothels and the female brothels. But he has this relationship with this one woman. He gives his she, best mate a bit of gobble as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. And the like, folks just like, what, what are you doing? And then he's like, oh, free blowjob, carry on. <laughs> that was so wild. Wow. So please do so that happened. Yeah. All right, so I can't remember the girl's name, but she has this baby. She, The crown gets wind of this. She's spirited away. We never see her again. But the baby kind Annie. of exists throughout Annie. the story. Yeah. Annie, okay. Yeah. So the baby exists throughout the story in the background, it survives. It's a scandal that he has this baby with this mm -hmm. like prostitute. So they shake down this group of prostitutes, Annie's among them, this group that knows about the baby. And they blackmail this other dude. I can't remember if it's like Sickert. Who is it? Do you remember who they blackmailed originally? The artist guy, the one who has Sickert. the studio. Yeah, Sickert, I think is his name. Yeah. That's and it. yeah. I, I understood everything I did read of the book. I remember what I did read. <laughs> <laughs> so it gets back to the queen. So she taps William, Sir William Bell, who's like the, the physician oh. of the crown, to take care of the problem, quote unquote. Now, she doesn't know that he's a fucking like psycho. So he goes out and he stalks all these women who are trying to shake Sickert down, this like group yeah. of five. <laughs> That's the Ripper. Sir William is the Ripper. He basically vandalizes their bodies, kills mm. them grotesquely. First two, he's a little bit gentle with. He drugs them and he kind of strangles them while they're kind of drugged out. And mm. then, he, then he just fucks up their corpses. Then he gets more bold going in with the knife and just fucking people up. Like slaying um, them in the street. In yeah, instance. basically, yeah. And then he's disturbed and he's very disappointed that he hasn't been able to fill the, finish the job. There's a whole Mason, Freemasonry yeah. subplot. Like, there's all sorts of shit going on. But that's like the basic idea is it's this conspiracy from the absolute top that results mm. in the murder of these women. So in other words, in Moore's story, these are not random killings. These are purposeful killings yeah. to, to eliminate the paper trail of this illegitimate child. From there, you get the character studies, basically, of all the women, deep character studies of all the women, the victims, deep character study of Sir William, and of the, the investigating Scotland Yard detective, Aberline. That's mm -hmm. the remainder of the, of the story. It's compelling as you go through it. How are they going to figure it out? Because you know, obviously, it's not a mystery. It's a procedural, mm -hmm. ultimately, and then a character study. So I thought it was expertly... Yeah. It definitely tackles the dehumanization of people by class, right? Yeah, the yeah. poorer you are, the less human you are, right? Okay. So the class system and how how it dehumanizes, I got it right the first time, <laughs> humanization yeah. of people by class, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they tackle the whole goal thing right from the start. Uh, yeah. Like we said, the first part, they go into a lot of, lot of backstory and the 
to really put the people in and Gaul, you see him as a child, how he goes to school. Uh, he has mm. that one guy from that takes him under the wing that gets him into the Masons. And from a child, he sees dissecting birds and stuff. So, yep. so yep. he already has a macabre fascination with dissecting, taking things apart yeah. and baking foxes alive. And you see that he's never nurtured by his mother. His mother seems like a very detached, cold person. So he yeah. never gains that empathy. Everything's very procedural. Everything has a purpose, a higher intellectual educational purpose, right? He looks at yeah, everything yeah. very, very mechanically. Even his wife, the first time they lay in bed together, it's black. And yeah. all you hear is, oh, it hurts. You don't know what he's doing. The scene before that, he goes into the, the asylum, the woman's asylum, and basically fisting his medical procedure for these crazy women is to fist them, yeah. right? He just sticks his hand right up their, their cooch. Oh, you know, like uh, the insanities led through the vagina or some shit like that, you know, like it's a, there's a direct correlation. And, and so then the first time he lays with his wife, is he actually penetrating her with his penis or is he just fisting her like he does all these crazy people we don't know because yeah. it's a complete black panel right it's mm. you don't know because he's such a bizarre detached person who can't relate to if you're a normal person you can't understand what's going through his head those little chapters help put it into context where like yeah people show up knock on his door we think you're the ripper we think you killed these people he's like well yeah did it in the name yeah. of science from the yeah. crown the crown told me to take care of this mm -hmm. and while i'm taking care of this i might as well advance science at the same time the lower class is treated like animals like dogs what other purpose do they have than to be put on a slab and used to better medical uh, procedures for the rich right might as well practice on like we do with labs with animals yeah. it's the same yeah. a fucking mm -hmm. idea right the yeah. working classes in most english towns were subjugated almost to the point of slavery in the mills of Sheffield, the average life expectancy was something like 36, while a working slave was 41. Yeah, yeah. It scares me thinking if, if I was to ever just be dumped into that age, just even the thought of not being able to brush my teeth twice a day. <laughs> the smells. I saw something this week that said on Oxford Street, all the steps are raised by about two feet. Of course, all transportation was for horses, whip them until they dropped dead. So there'd just be loads of dead horses. The steps had to be raised one horse higher than the actual road and just covered in absolute shit. <laughs> just everywhere. Dead horses and shit. It is really difficult to even try and fathom one small aspect, let alone it's medieval. Yeah. Oral sex must have been much less common back in those oh, days. Oh, Jesus, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, that's why when he was getting it, he was like, this is a fucking treat. This rarely <laughs> happens, you know, this thing where yeah. prestige. Yeah, gets, his, gets his diary out. Well, that's my shower for this six months. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> but, oh. um, Joe, what you're saying about uh, um, shit, I've completely lost my train of thought. What the fuck was I going to say? I'm, I'm about the up. classes, treating the poor as just... Oh, oh, about Sir William's character. From the beginning, you can see that he's got a screw loose and he has no compassion or empathy for people. That's one of the reasons why it really worked for me that the Masons were such a critical part of his sort of psyche mm -hmm. because that provided structure, that provided camaraderie, that provided all those rituals that he was lacking in his actual life. Mm -hmm. um, and so it made sense to me that he was killing, in a sense, in the name of masonry and the mm. crown. That actually makes me think it's sociopathy and not psychopathy, because he can be very controlling and astute when needs be, but he has a blatant disregard for life. And it's actually, well, it's not about the control. He can switch mm. into being the normal guy and saying things that he needs to say. Like in the passage of conversation with the queen when he does his job. And she's oh like, what are you doing? That was chilling. What are you that doing? Scene. And he's like, well, we need to hold back whatever demographic he was talking about because there's an uprising of this form of politics. And you can see in France, it's already becoming a problem. So this sends a message so we don't have a similar uprising here. Exactly. And she's like, okay, so you're acting in the interest of the crown. Yeah. And he's like, carry like, on. Very, very much, ma'am. 
get the job done and let's have away with it. I was surprised how cold Queen Victoria was portrayed, but at the same time, she didn't tie him up as the loose thread. Because they seemed prepared until he admitted his crimes to allow him to carry on. And in actual fact, if he was to carry on the killings, how would they be able to stop him? Because he holds all the cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. But of course, it doesn't end up that way. And you don't know whether he was driven mad by the killings or it was, in actual fact, the growth of his own psychopathy that sent him to the madhouse. It needs to be said in actual fact that Gull was actually, in real life, an advocate for women, and he set up one of the first schools for women in medicine. Now, who's to say whether that directly conflicts or that's an incredible cover, but it's like the incompetent buffoon that was in charge of the Titanic in the film, where in actual fact he went down with the ship, saving lives, making sure everybody else got to the life raft. So... I mean, it's not like anybody that's related to Gull's going to listen to... It's not likely anybody's going to listen to this podcast full stop, Tim. But (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it was one of the things. One thing I I forgot to mention, there is another subplot where there is a guy, I think it's, is it Duggard or Dickard or something like that, who who actually, or Druitt or something, who did die. Yes. Uh, This is an historical person. that was tragic. Yeah, there's this whole subplot where basically like, the people in charge of Scotland Yard are completely in on it. They, they're aware of what's happening and they're trying to come up with a, someone to blame it on to like tamp down like public panic over this. They position Masons in all the roles of superiority yeah. in the police yep. force to keep it in the Masons authority. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they tap like this Drew, uh, what's his name? Drew it or something. something uh, like he's just that, like a yeah. local schoolmaster, just a regular guy, kind of an awkward weirdo. And basically, they murder him, and they pin the murders on him, at least publicly speaking. Um, and so there's this whole subplot there that's real tragic. Yeah, I really, yeah. really felt that. It was horrible to read. Yeah, I know there was a lot of, of battery and, and sexual objectification throughout, but it's not that they were working girls and you felt that it was on the cards because you knew what to expect loosely from the story. But the way that they find a little thing in his past and then they coerce yeah. a boy's parents to say that he's trying it on with their young son in actual fact, he's just been attentive to him because he thinks he has talent at cricket and he has an interest yeah. in cricket himself. They coerce him into writing down his feelings about it, which then ends up being his suicide note. And then they put yeah, bricks yeah. in his pockets and they drove him, don't they? Push him off like a pier or something. Horrible. Like, really, really felt it. In fact, in actual fact, he was recovered, body was recovered with stones in his pockets. Yeah. Like, that did happen. And some people still think, according to the annotations, that he's a legitimate suspect, like an actual suspect for the Ripper okay. killings, whereas Moore dismisses that as a conspiracy. Mm. So we'll finish it off with the one obvious thing. I mean, of course, this was a story that requires a form of sexual battery, but again, it's an Alan Moore story that is laced from start to finish in sexual battery. You can't tell this story without it, but the question that I ask with the context of everything we've read so far in V for Vendetta, in Watchmen, in Killing Joke, everything we've read of Necronomicon, This is a story where it's justified. However, the question I then ask is, why is Alan Moore drawn to telling this story? Yeah, I mean... It's shocking. Drums up debate and conversation, probably. I don't know. Alan Moore is a very controversial person in the way he presents himself. He's a very... Mm -hmm. He's not a... How would you say? A welcoming person. I think he welcomes conflict and debate. You know, like, I, I think, think he's quite if, affable, though, when you hear him talk. I think he is enthusiastic about comics and he is in, he speaks with a warmness. Oh. I, I simply think it's almost like he protesteth a little too much about the superhero in DC and Marvel. But I've always seen him be pretty conversational, anecdotal in his interviews. He always comes across quite well to me. Oh, I'm not saying he doesn't, but I'm saying he won't play it safe. 
if he has something to say, he's going to say it, and he will, he'll be yeah. extremely unapologetic about it. He's not an apologist. And that's the way he approaches everything he does. If you don't like it, don't read it. He doesn't have time. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. That's the thing. He just cuts through the bullshit. It's just noise, right? Not in contrast to that, but it should be said that the sexual violence in this is gratuitous at times. Mm. It doesn't mean it has no purpose, but I mean, you guys know what scenes I'm talking about. It does nothing to mention them necessarily, but readers or listeners should know that there are chunks of this that are could definitely be triggering to people and are are difficult to get through. They're silent too. That's a thing. Like these gratuitous scenes are silent. They're just the art. I think there's necessary points of it, but there is also a great amount of sexualized panels that aren't in direct relation to the Ripper arc. There is a lot of graphic sex, voluntary and involuntary, sprinkled throughout this, irrespective of the Ripper story. I would say there's four or five other instances. Okay. Speaking of those scenes from early on with, with Gull, like with the bird, it's a first person view. Where all you see is his hands, like you're looking through his eyes, which makes yeah, it more, yeah, yeah. which makes it much more intimate, right? So I was wondering yeah, if he yeah, continued yeah. without throughout when he's doing like a lot the, of these acts. And- the section I'm thinking of is where he <clears throat> kills Mary Kelly and brutalizes her body. That is from the third person. You are looking at him doing it. Okay. And mm-hmm. and in some cases, not even at him, but at the object that he's carving up. Mm-hmm. And so interesting. I hadn't thought about that, Joe. That in the beginning, it is from his, from the first person. Not all yeah. the time, many scenes, yeah, you know, and yeah. he, there is a play back and forth with that early on when they're developing his character. Yeah. Whether you want to experience you. it or not. Yeah, exactly. How will this make you feel? Very uncomfortable as you're reading mm-hmm. it as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's an element of it being a storytelling device as well, because in those early scenes, you assume it's the Ripper, but you don't have the identity. You're not sure yet. Yeah. yeah. So I think doing it from the the first person point of view, it actually, in one of the few instances early on, that it allows for an element of, not subterfuge, but it allows it to be slightly more clandestine than how the rest of the the story is candid. (laughs) Joe, would you recommend this? Like I said, if you enjoy historical if you're a history buff this definitely reads like that you know for the especially the early going i didn't get past i think i got to chapter six right so like you guys say that's when it really starts to pick up so based on the first 200 pages i'd be like (laughs) if you like comics for fun and excitement this probably is not the book for you and if you're into like art impressive art that you know, you get a turn page and whoa, that was fucking amazing. This is not the book for you. It's a slow read, a slow burn to the most extreme point for a good chunk of it. So, I mean, if you've read Alan Moore before, then you kind of know maybe what you're getting into. But I mean, if you've read other things by Moore and you're just lukewarm about it, this definitely will not change your mind about it. It won't be- make you become a big Alan Moore fan. Well, it's like Tim always says, the classics aren't necessarily the ones you lead people to in the first instance. You, mm-hmm. This isn't an introduction, but I think for hardened, inquisitive, I'm trying not to be disparaging to Joe when I say this, but if you have, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if you've read, if you've read, an, let's put it this way, you need to have read a substantial amount of comics before you pick this up to appreciate how different it is to anything else that you've read. Tim? As we say, you can't 7 out of 10 read anything. You either recommend it or you don't. Where were you on this one? I recommend, but with those exact caveats. We've said this with, to my memory, every single Alan Moore we've read, this is not for the newcomer. You would never send somebody to Watchmen as their first comic. You would never send somebody to, to Swamp Thing as their first superhero. Like, no, you wouldn't. No. You know, that kind of thing. Likewise, this is really a PhD level comic book, I think that you have to have, I think, a lot of comic consumption under your belt before you can really even attempt this, in my opinion. But having said that, if you do it, I think the rewards are really substantial. And I would recommend the color version. The color version does pop. It seems like it enhances the, the experience. It's, a, it's kind of a period piece too. So if you're not into that, then 
yeah. you'll probably be turned was... off right from the start as well. Yeah, yeah. So you, you got to keep that in mind, right? It's that's not exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. If you've come from the historical point of view uh, and you're used to reading pages and pages of documentation, this might actually be a welcome tonic to a more literary approach or more prose-based mm -hmm. approach of heavy reading. I mean, we're coming from it as the casual, well, not casual, as experienced comic book readers. And one Marty Bum from Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Now would, you. I would recommend this. Like I said, it, it's in operation and perseverance, but it also rewards that perseverance. I would say I was 100% with Joe up to the point that Joe read. But there was a point, a chapter or two later on, where I was just in complete flow state. I would say the first four took as long to read as the last 10. Mm. Yeah, I totally it agree. Was... Once all the players end up in the Whitechapel town, they're all in one location, right? Then the story yeah. starts to get a little more flow. The pacing starts to, you know, the cops are there, the coppers. <laughs> Goals there. Everyone's in the same area. Because I got to chapter six, and that's the first kill. And it starts to pick up a little bit. I yeah, tried to read last not... night, but I fell asleep. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh god! Uh, all right, then onto the film. Onto the film. <laughs> film. Onto the film, then, gentlemen. It was directed by Albert Hughes. Johnny Depp plays a kind of combination of Lee's and who's the main character? Aberline. Aberline. A combination of Aberline and Lee's. Heather Graham plays the head hooker. Mary Kelly in home of what's his name? The little hobbit. Bilbo Baggins. He plays Sir William Gull. Robbie Coltrane plays, I don't know, some policeman or something. I don't know, you work it out. Uh this is fucking shit. <laughs> it is one of the worst comic adaptations. Look, I know it's 2001, but let's not let that's no fucking excuse. It clumsily jumps from scene to scene. It fills in gaps with endless static exposition. The accents are so bad. Like, us Brits have won fucking Oscars, and we consistently win Oscars, and we have a number of dramatic actors in this country, even, even if it's just because we don't have to hear the accents. Just get British people. It completely neuters the crooks. The gallows humour, the dark humour of the of the working girls is where they're talking about, you know, the, the scabs they've got on their fannies and that sort of shit. Like, it's just turned into a sort of wink, widge, nudge, nudge. Guess we're going to suck another cock then, guys. It, like, the whole thing is overall sanitised. Like, why combine Lee's with Abilene? Like, mm -hmm. why have this hybrid character? It's just, it's, just everything about it is so misused. This is why mm -hmm. your brain hurts. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, there was one dream sequence about two thirds of the way through that fills in the whole of the conspiratorial overarching story. It's so clumsy. Feels like there was a script for another film. They just went, I'll turn this into From Hell. The only one bit where I went, oh, okay, is when the Masons, the Stonemasons Court was done panel from panel from the comics at the end and I, I know like we're going to talk about Akira on Thursday and I know it's like a 2000 page series and that's truncated so you have to be very careful about what you use and what you don't use but you still enjoyed it minute to minute and if you weren't aware of Akira the manga which I'm not I just thought it was the way that eastern storytelling works which is a lot more sequential than it is like a the ebb and flow of the three-act structure of Western films. But, like, I don't get why, if you've got the awareness to do that scene panel for panel and use the the text and the, and the lettering and the dialogue from that, why have you done it for the most bland moment? And the kill scenes were just... It, like, the whole thing was just completely neutered. I, I, yeah. I, I didn't give in, but I tell you what, I only paid attention to it for about 30 minutes i was i watched the final 30 minutes when i was writing up my notes so jen so i'll tell you this up front i am not recommending this joe <laughs> 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 
Well, thanks for tuning in, people. That was the episode. And <laughs> see. No, uh, well, uh, listen. You know I'm not the biggest fan of the book, but the book was way better than this movie. So, I mean, take that for what it's worth. I mean, yeah, I get it. It was, it was a. I think I enjoyed reading the book more than watching this movie. Definitely, uh, like you said, the casting is mind-boggling. Why Johnny Depp? Why Heather Graham? Did you find they had chemistry? I didn't feel much chemistry between the two characters. The relationship uh, was completely wasted yeah. because Abilene is smitten by this lady that he's only gone to find information from. And he you think he's almost, it, he has almost a familial bond. And then in the end, he lends her some money. And it's this trust that they've, they've built up and it's not sexualized until you find out that he is actually falling for this prostitute. It, and then she leaves to, I can't, no, it, it tramples it tramples any nuance so please continue uh, yeah ian holmes does i think an okay job as gall uh sir william gall the favorite performance i had from the, yeah a little bit but my favorite performance in all this was from jason fleming who plays netley mm. you know where you feel like he has the conflict the inner conflict right of what's going on but he's lowered down on the totem pole. So he can't really say anything for fear of the repercussions of, of the crown. Yeah, exactly. He'll just become another person that'll get thrown under the bus. So he shuts up, but overall, like you said, it's not a very good movie. They make uh, but him I, medically hindered though, don't they? They make him so he is like, he has actual problems, not just a working class curmudgeon, which I thought he was portrayed at. He wasn't bad in the context of everything else in this film, but I still think there was a creative decision to make it, oh, people won't understand that like the working class can't read and write, so we have to make him a bit... Challenged. Um, yeah. yeah, they have to make him challenged. So there was a visualisation for it as opposed to... But, I mean, yeah, he, he did the job. And that's not saying he did a great job, but I thought yeah, he was yeah. the one who had maybe the, yeah. the more... Closer to the book, but like you said, they made changes, and Blah. it's Blah. easy to it's easy to drift off while watching this and Blah. like not pay attention and do other things, you know. So <laughs> anyone anyone who wants to see it, you can go stream it for free Blah. on Blah. Uh, Disney Plus. On Disney Plus, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Timbo, Timothy, Tim, Timbo. It occurs to me that not only did they smash together the Avroline and the Lee's characters, but they smash together. Heather Graham plays two characters too. She actually, mm. in theory, she plays none of the characters because, yeah. sorry, Marie Kelly is the most, the paradigmatic, most famous victim of the Ripper. Like, sorry. And then they combine her with Emma. Remember the comic, mm -hmm. Avroline does have like a romantic interest in this prostitute that he like sees the bar from time to time. It starts off as like a friendship, but you can tell like he starts getting dressed up for her, wearing cologne for her, mm. and he's he lends her some money. He's both angry and I think sad when she ends up skipping town. So they, they smash together those two characters, but in a way that makes no sense in the fucking Jack the Ripper story. It's like, hello, this is the most famous of his victims, and what, you're just going to smash her together with? It's kind of offensive to the actual person in some ways. Like, I don't know. I... The funny thing is, like, when this came out 20 years ago, I was like, oh, this is pretty kind of a fun movie. And now, 20 years later, with all the, it does not age well, probably never was good in the first place. Like, I can't remember what, was, what it was in competition with back then, but yeah. having read the story, it's just like a shite. It, why even so adapt the story if you're going to do what you've done to it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Know, sucks. Yeah. Like, I, I remember bad, seeing bad, it bad, 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 when bad, bad, it first bad. came out, and I was. Let's just say I've never really gone back to it till yeah. you guys suggested to do the show. That I kind of <laughs> had to watch it again. <laughs> so I went and back Joe's and last it. appearance on the end <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Other shit we make him do. Yeah. So, well, actually, in general, uh, like even the Superman, I mean, it had its moments, you know, so, so everything okay. has its moments. To, yeah. to contextualize, of course, the first X-Men and Spider-Man films were 2002. However, Blade 2 was in 2002. So Blade had already been made in the late 90s. Hellboy was 2004. 
but I mean, you can't even put this in the same category as superhero movies because it's more of a period historical piece than it is anything remotely to any other comic book uh, content that was being put out by studios. The only other thing I could think of that would be comparable is what's the... Uh, Beef of Vendetta was 2005. Road to Redemption, is that one of the... Road to Redemption, con- that, well, 2002, yeah. 2002. Yeah, when you look at Beef of Vendetta, when you look at Road to Redemption, you're, what was the Scarlett Johansson breakthrough? Ghost, Ghost World. World. Yeah, that that's 2001, well. I think. Yeah, yeah so, that's a really good movie, actually. That's a great movie. It's not like studios were struggling to adapt independent comics. It's just this one did struggle badly to do it yeah sad this would make a really good six or eight parter totally on a streaming service yeah a series yeah you could probably say that about a lot of alan moore stuff mm-hmm. yeah so mm-hmm. yeah i agree also yeah. look at the track record of uh, the brothers right the hughes brothers here Directed by Albert and Alan Hughes. And, uh, you know, their most famous movie before then was Menace to Society, right? Did The Book of Eli, which was, eh, a Dead President. I mean... Strange I mean, choice then, really. Doing, like, hood gangster films. Yeah, to this. I don't know. It's really bizarre. Oh. Yeah. Weird. It's weird. Uh, I lazy. Don't know. It's, this movie's lazy. It's lazy. Part of it felt like it was um, the way they approached prostitution was almost like it was, if at all it were possible, it was like the CW Arrowverse had done it. Yeah, totally. Like they're just having a good joke. (laughs) More cock for me today. Okay, so of the group of the five or six girls, the four of them are haggard. And then you got Heather Graham, who's perfectly like gorgeous. Come on, dude. Mm-hmm. It makes no sense. No sense. That's one of the things I noticed, too. Her dress was always super clean and nice. Yeah. Her hair was Her always hair well is like, done. She's yeah. clean at all times. Like, yeah. Quaffed. Yeah. <laughs> Shaved beaver. Sprays a little bit of perfume. You know. Yeah, exactly. Keep, just keep the interest. When you... <laughs> all right. Okay. I think, um, do you have anything else to say about the films, or shall we leave it there? No, it's bad. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Was it better than uh, what's the other one you oh, hated? Uh, it lives. It lives inside. Was it better than that one or worse than that one? Well, it's I better looked, than it lives inside. Yeah, I looked. Yeah, at, okay. I, when, <laughs> when I looked at my ranking on IMDb, I was like, "Is this a two or is it a three? And when I popped up two and it had "It Lives Inside" on, I went, "No, no, no, no I'm sorry, I'm sorry," and then just put it as a three out of ten. Uh, oh yeah. So, final question. I'm guessing nobody's recommending this one, are they? Not no, really. No. no. So, apologies, Joe. We've tried to see the shit on this one, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> they got a 6.7 on 10 on IMDb. I can't mm. believe that score. And when you think there's less than 250 films in the entirety of every film ever made to have a score above eight on IMDb. IMDb rarely gets above eight. Like yeah. good movies get sevens, and this yeah. is at a 6.7. 6. I am dumbfounded. Dumbfounded. Yeah, wow. yeah, it's outrageous, isn't it? Outrageous. It is. It is out- it's, it's almost <laughs> scandalous. It is scandalous. <laughs> I'm offended. Alan Moore should write a fucking salacious comic about that. <laughs> with, with a lot of rape. Someone's yeah, gonna right. get a score like that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, have you guys read uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Anybody read that comic? No, I've I heard it's that. not very good. Oh, really? Oh, that's too bad. But you guys will love it. <laughs> gobble, 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 gobble. <laughs> Tickle the gooch a little bit. Tickle the gooch. Gobble, gobble, gobble. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> All right, then, Joe, say goodbye to the listeners. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening. Have a great one, guys. Uh, do you want to promote anything? or uh, Just the usual. Like, we're putting out a few episodes a week of uh, How Do We Get Here? 
Matt comes on once a month and does an episode with us. So uh, you could tune into that. You could find it at Graphic Vandalism on YouTube or just punch in how do we get here and episodes will probably pop up. We do uh, talk about movies, music, comics. We do creator interviews. So a little bit of everything. We dabble in a little bit of everything. It's jolly good as well. Thank you. Um, Tim? Yeah, I I feel much better um, than I did like an hour and a half ago. So thank you guys. I I feel like I can get on with the day. Yeah. Yeah. When I went to the laboratory moments ago, when you were tending child, I thought my hands barely hurt since I've had this conversation. I think I've purged all the negativity. Maybe that's what it was. I had like a... um, I had like a little negativity baby growing in my brain. <laughs> well, that's that's what I, I told you. It. Well, it yeah. is what you told me. Yeah. 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 From yeah. 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 Stop, stop watching bad movies, then, and you, you'll be fine. <laughs> Shots. Shots. <laughs> so, um, okay, at this point in the podcast, it's where we probably should say thank you for listening, Brussels. Thank you for listening, Ashburn. And to yeah. our newest fan, Chris from one of the pubs where I live, where he's been very complimentary about us. And he's been listening to them as we upload them and he started working backwards. And I said, probably don't go back too far because it was a fucking farce. <laughs> 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 but he knows, he knows who Joe is. He goes, oh, I just listened to a Joe episode. Um, he didn't know where you were, Tim, but, you know, don't take it to heart. (laughs) 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 Oh, Chris, good to have you here. Oh, let's wrap it up there then. We are the End Podcast. We are on all your favourite listening locations. If you've made it this far, then why haven't you hit subscribe? Hit subscribe, hit the like. And I'm not just saying this, like, I roll it out every week. We genuinely, genuinely, want you to come back so please just hit it now if you don't listen to us in a couple of weeks or a month or so then you can always unfollow hit it now please i am matt i'm one of your regular co-hosts and that only leaves me one thing left to say we have been and this is the end And if you leave a five-star review, Matt will personally give you a handy.